I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. On this episode of TBA Now, our guest is Jonathan Mansbach. Jonathan is a doctor at Children's Hospital, actually not just a doctor, he's the chief of Children's Hospital Inpatient Service. He's helping us figure out what exactly is happening with children in COVID. Jonathan Mansbach, welcome to TBA Now. One of the criteria for being a guest not that we're particularly strict, we're a progressive reform congregation, but uh, is membership at uh, Beth Avodah. So give me a sense, uh, when did you sign up and uh, what's been in your involvement uh, from the beginning to right now? I remember this very vividly. Rachel and I, when she was pregnant, we were looking for temples and we were shopping around. And when we came to TBA, we were just completely taken by you um, and sort of how you, your presence really, um, and just how you interacted with the congregation. Well, I, I wasn't fishing for compliments or anything, but thank you for saying this. Jonathan, we know you're a doc. What do you do and where do you do it? In 1996, Rachel and I were trying to match cities. Uh, so she was applying for PhD programs uh, in religious studies, and I was in the what's called the match, which some people will be familiar with and others won't. Um, as a medical student, when you're graduating, you rank the hospitals where you want to be, uh, one through whatever number you want. And then the hospitals rank their candidates and there's a quote match done by the computer um, and it gets spit out as to where you're going to go. And that's that. Um, there's a ceremony that is uh, usually done at most medical schools where people pick up a little envelope and inside that envelope is the rest of your life for, well, for three years at least, or five years, depending on what you're doing. For us, it was, you know, very stressful because we were trying to, as I said, we we're trying to match cities. So I only ranked, you know, certain places in certain cities where Rachel had, there was a place where she wanted to go. And I matched at Boston Children's, which was my top choice. And this is where we wanted to be, so Rachel could go to Brown uh, to do her PhD. And that's what happened. Um, and so I've been at Boston Children's ever since. So I started as an intern um, in 1996. I did a fellowship, which is after residency between, you know, for three years after that. And then I've been there all along. What, so I have two questions. First, uh, what do you do there now? So uh, right now uh, for clinical time, so when I take care of patients, most of the time I am taking care of hospitalized children 
who do not have a defined diagnosis and are not cared for by another subspecialty group. So for example, if um, a child has cystic fibrosis and needs to be admitted to the hospital, they would be hospitalized on the pulmonary team. Uh, but if a child came in um, you know, with pneumonia or something else or had not been diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, they would come in on, on the hospital medicine team. And so that's, that's what I do clinically. Um, I do also supervise an adolescent clinic, a young adult clinic, uh, one afternoon per week. I'm in fact in charge of now all of the hospital medicine uh, team. And then, so that's my clinical work from a research standpoint, because most people at academic hospitals don't just do one thing, they do lots of different things. Well, you're already doing a hundred things before we even yeah. know what you're doing for research. Uh, I um, have been studying a infant respiratory illness for almost 20 years. Um, actually, Caleb had it when he was an infant, and that's what sort of started me down on this pathway. Uh, but we um, and uh, colleagues of mine at Massachusetts General have uh, several cohorts of children that we follow um, who've had the infant disease bronchiolitis. Um, and we follow them for the development of asthma. And uh, we've been doing that for a long time, and it's been super interesting. How was it that at some crucial moment before you got word of where you were going in that envelope, how did you end up choosing the direction of pediatric medicine? Yeah, well... I mean, it's not big, lucrative work, no, pediatric medicine. no. Um, well, there are a couple of things. One, I'm not particularly neat. <laughs> so um, in medical school, um, there is a time when you do practice surgery. Um, and we were practicing surgery on um, actually on a pig. And they cut the one of the big vessels, you know, and you're supposed to sew it back together. Um, and I, I just realized at that point that like mine was leaking all over the place. As I said, <laughs> I was like, this is just never, never going to work for me. I just don't have the 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 neat factor um, or the artistic ability to 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 do this. So it really came down to I just enjoyed either a, a, you know. Um, internal medicine, which is, you know, for adults or pediatrics. Um, and it really came down to those, to that choice. And I had recently done uh, a, a pediatric cardiology rotation um, uh, at Duke where I was for medical school and I just loved it. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. Um, and so that's that was one of my main reasons why I did pediatrics. And plus, when I started thinking about, okay, you're going to have to be up all night. Who do you want to be up for? What are you going to get up for? I thought, well, I can get up at three in the morning and see a kid, but it, you know, that just feels right to me. Mm. Often people will say something like, if you ever begin to feel sorry for yourself, you should go uh, to children's hospital and sit. Uh, in the waiting area, and then think about your life after that experience. Does that resonate with you, having been there professionally all these years? Um, yes. Yes. 
there are uh, many days that I think I don't know how these families do it, where they dedicate pretty much their entire life to their children who have multiple disabilities. Um, and I think that lots of people don't really realize, you know, how many kids there are out there who have tubes and things coming from different orifices and in their brains and all kinds of things and all the surgeries that we do to try to make people's lives better. Well, Jonathan, let me ask you following up on that. Um, many of us might wonder next, well, how do you professionally do that? You're, the job you've described, the work that you're doing now, seems to me from my non-medical perspective, not a small part of it is detective work, figuring out why these kids seem to be so sick with no immediate explanation. And they're suffering, which means that their parents are suffering. And they're looking to you like, okay, we give up. And probably their pediatrician they've been going to has given up. That's why they're at the emergency room or that's why you're now connecting with them. So what's it like for you doing this kind of detective work? And number two, what does it do for you spiritually? How does it affect your life? You know, people talk about the humanism in medicine that sometimes it goes away and you have to stay in touch with it. And I think to a certain degree, you people are do remove themselves a little bit from the situations um, because otherwise I think in general it would be uh, completely overwhelming emotionally. Uh, and objectively, you need to make decisions not, you know, that are based on information, data, you know, previous studies and not based on sort of emotional connections with the families. That's not to say that we all have emotional connections with the families. I mean, we have to. We, we, we do something called family-centered rounds where when we go and we see all of our patients, we do it in the presence of the parents and the child um, in the room. Everyone's in the room so that we take the family's, you know, opinions, their feelings, how they feel like things are going uh, into consideration, you know, every day that we see them. Um, and we try to explain what we're doing in a way that they can understand it. Um, and sometimes it can be completely overwhelming, but on the whole, the, the, the families are great. The kids are amazingly resilient amazingly resilient i mean you know it would break your heart to see some of these children you know who smile at you and are just like you know like limp noodles in a bed um and so you know it, it's not always so depressing it's actually kind of uplifting many times and 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 realistically most kids do fine so Right, right. You know, it's, you know, which is different than in adult medicine when a lot of times things are not, you know, there's a diagnosis, it, it's not going to go well, um, and it's kind of sad. Um, for us, many times, you know, if we, <clears throat> we can sort of make kids' lives better, 
um, and make the family's lives better as well. And so I think that's, you know, a great, it's sort of a great thing about pediatrics is that kids are so resilient. They can get really sick really fast, but they bounce right back for the most part if you do the right thing. And thank God for the kids and thank God for their parents. That that's a truth yeah. of raising children when they're ill. Um, Jonathan, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, we're, we're always in the greater Boston area. The fact that we live in sort of a, a mecca of medical science is, is extraordinary for anyone who's needed any kind of medical care. And of course, now with COVID and this huge, crazy surge that we are now in the midst of, on the news, in a whole variety of media, you know, it's all about what's happening in hospitals. And there's this, you know, this just sense of dread and panic and anxiety and beds are filling and it's very, very intense. And I'd love for you to share with us something about what does children's hospital look like in COVID time? It's changed. So back in March of 2020, when the pandemic began, those first few months were really stressful. I mean, incredibly stressful to, um, and we, we, we as a children's hospital were not seeing lots of kids actually. In fact, our, our volume of patients was way, way down. And we were trying to figure out how, how we would help the region. And so, we became sort of the, the children's hospital for the region um, as adult, you know, as other hospitals that care for children close their pediatric units. We said we would take on those kids. Mass General kept m many of their kids. They have a, a large capacity, um, as did Tufts, I think. But, but many, you know, so there are lots of tiny little hospitals out there where um, they needed all of those adult beds. And so that was one thing. And we weren't sure at that point, like how many people would be coming our way. Like we thought we could just get overrun at that time. We did not um, by any stretch because with everyone staying at home, um, a lot of the vi other viral illnesses that affect kids sort of just went away. Um, and, uh, and so our, you know, our inpatient population dropped dramatically and we were not seeing kids in the clinic because everything got shut down. But we were every single day for hours and hours on end, like trying to figure out like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do it safely? How are we going to educate the medical students that are supposed to be in our hospital right now um, when they're no longer allowed to come? Um, and so there was a lot to, to take on. Um, we at the, at the hospital, um, and I'm not involved with this, but have a, a command center. You know, they've been on, on since March. Yeah, you know, it's, just it's nonstop. I mean, the, um, the people who have been running our command center have just been doing an unbelievable job for so long. Um, and, um, and so, it has changed. We've sort of we we started opening back up again. We've ramped back up the clinics. We rapidly went to um, virtual visits, you know, for for patients, um, which was an amazing feat 
you know, we went from like 20 a week to thousands mm. um, in a very short period of time to ramp that up. Um, and now, you know, our volume of patients that we see is down still. But, and we're, but we're doing lots of virtual visits. Do you think <laughs> that the virtual visits, the telehealth, are you satisfied with how that's working out in general? I think for many things, it's fabulous. For some things, it's not as good. But I think for certain things, I don't think that's going to go away. I think for some people, it is highly convenient. You don't have to drive anywhere. You, right. you know, and if there is no physical, really, that's needed, just more conversation and planning... Um, I think that is can be super helpful uh, and just more convenient for for families. Yeah, so I think, I think I don't think that's actually going to go anywhere. And that's you know we talk about the silver linings of of this whole thing, and that's one of them. I think is that you know we've really ramped this you know virtual visits up in a way that I think will be sustained even after this goes away. So Jonathan, kids don't seem to be getting COVID with any kind of alarming number. In fact, it seems to be remarkably small considering the potential for a, just a dire, dire situation. Has anyone figured out or any kind of suppositions why it seems to be so, so stark, the contrast between adult versus child contagion? The answer is no one really knows. That's the That'll be the final answer. <laughs> um, the longer answer, um, without getting into too many weeds, is that there are possibilities that kids are get exposed to what are called endemic coronaviruses. So those are those are coronaviruses that have been around for a while, and that there may be some cross reactivity between kids' responses to those viruses and the new one, um, that adults have had sort of waning immunity over mm. time. So that's one possibility. And it's just, it, the other one is just that the kids' immune systems are just a little bit better um, yeah. than, you know, than as people get older, their immune systems are, you know, a little more fatigued, let's just say. Um, and so I think that that's the other main, the main issue. So on the which one is not hand, to say that kids don't get sick, because no, they right. do, <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. it would be perhaps easy to say, oh, what a relief! Uh, kids don't get corona very often, and therefore it doesn't affect them. Um, but in fact, the world that we're living in and how it's changed the fundamental day-to-day -day life of all of us, but particularly for children, has had a direct effect on their health. And I mean, I don't have the statistics on that. I don't even know if someone has a can make a direct correlation, but sure as heck seems true based on the numbers of kids that you're seeing for a variety of conditions. W would you reflect on that? Like, what what are you seeing? What What are the effects of COVID on the development of kids? And how is it manifesting in a hospital setting? It, it's a good question because I think when people think about, oh, coronavirus doesn't affect children. Well, first of all, that's not true. Just point blank. That's just not a true statement. Coronavirus does affect children directly. Um, we have kids who are 
hospitalized and quite ill with coronavirus. Not that many, thank goodness, but they there are some. There are also kids who don't get sick initially, but then have an inflammatory condition four-ish weeks after their infection that also can make them quite ill um, and leave them with uh, different heart problems or blood clots or other things that um, they would not have otherwise had. Again, not super common, but it happens um, and is, uh, is, you know, those kids are actually pretty ill when they come into the hospital. But, but probably the greatest thing that has happened, at least it seems so far, with uh, coronavirus is, is not related to the coronavirus. It's like the shrapnel of this whole thing is uh, really the effects on mental health um, for, for children. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, but we have had so many children with behavioral health issues in the hospital um, it's kind of astounding. And it's in some ways seems to be going unreported, I think. I don't feel like people have a good sense of how devastated many kids are um, by this. Don't, by, you know, by the, not coronavirus itself, but by all the other effects that uh, are happening because of it. And, and whether it's just coronavirus, whether it's all the other unrest that seems to be going on in the world, um, whether it's both, which it probably is, um, is not, it's not clear to me. But I think people should probably be aware that in our hospital, we have every day kids who are so ill mentally that they need, they need inpatient level of, of care. There, many of them are suicidal. Um, many of them just are dysregulated, so they're very agitated and, and violent. Um, some very young children, many kids who are on the autism spectrum um, with autism spectrum disorder are getting very behaviorally dysregulated as well because their environments are different and that's, that's particularly damaging. And they come to the emergency department because it's an emergency and there's nowhere for them to go. There's no beds, no psychiatric beds for them. Uh, and so they'll wait in the emergency department for you know, 48 hours, sometimes a little bit more. And when there's still no bed available, they will be hospitalized on the medical floor to wait for a bed. We are, you know, that's a medical floor, it's not a psychiatric floor. So there's no real therapy happening there. They're just sitting and waiting. Mm. Um, our psychiatry team comes by um, and we'll see them and help, you know, and help the medical staff with <clears throat> medications and things like this. But, but again, it's not, it's not a therapeutic environment. I mean, this is, it's really just a. It's management. It's just, yeah. And so, you know, we, we could have, uh, I think one day in the past week, we've had 50 kids maybe in the hospital at total, just waiting. Mm. Um, on our services one day last week, we had 16, you know, of our just 16 kids just sitting there waiting, you know, for for beds um, to open up so that they could be cared for. This is 
This is not a new problem. It's decades old, actually, uh, that the mental not health system- psychiatric. Yeah, these sort of what we call borders, psychiatric borders, because that's what they are. They're bordering, boarding on the medical team, awaiting psychiatric bed to open. You know, this is decades old, but it has been particularly bad um, since coronavirus. I can't imagine what it must be like for that child and the family of that child to literally be looking at the four walls and realizing this is not the right place. It's the only place, and it's only a temporary solution to a far more significant problem, which is that they need help. Yeah, it, 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 it's sort of a terrible situation because no one feels good about it. Right. When you say dysregulation, I suppose that's, that's a, a bucket of symptoms. What are some of the things that are most common? Speaking not just of the borders, but of other illnesses that are occurring that are more psychiatrically oriented, the one that really has the volume has increased tremendously are eating disorders. Hmm. Again, I, you know, I think this is, you know, again, there's no data to back this up, but this, my sense is, is that when things are completely out of control, people want to control something. And um, some kids resort to controlling the food that they nourish themselves with. And we have, I think three to four times the numbers of kids in the hospital with eating disorders wow. um, than we've had in the past. The, uh, the eating disorders clinic at the hospital is overflowing right now. And, and, and this is really a since March situation. I know that the treatment for eating disorders is by no means a simple uh, outline, just do these three things and then you know, we've got this solved. It's a long-term situation. And while those kids are in your care, it must be such a difficult process because you become responsible for them. And if the food control thing is the primary focus, just because they're in the hospital doesn't mean they're going to somehow eat heartily when they're with you. Yes, they, uh, those kids are in the hospital because they are medically unstable. Like they've already, it's advanced enough so that- Right, so that's the concern. reason they are in our hospital is that they are medically unstable. So our role is to stabilize them um, and then hopefully try to place them into whatever sort of situation they need, whether that be going home or going to an eating disorder facility. But we have a protocol in place at the hospital and have for decades that works. I don't know how graphic you want me to, to be here, but um, the children eat um, either by mouth or by us placing a tube um, to, to have them eat because the nutrition ends up being their medicine and, uh, and that's, so they have to have it. Um, and it can be difficult. For sure. It can be difficult. And it's quite, it's, it's obviously very stressful uh, for the families. But I think many parents, men, some parents, I would say many parents probably, are relieved. Right. Some are still very in, intertwined with their child and, and, and feeling the distress of the child and not, you know, 
Um, and so that that's when things can become difficult, you know, and very stressful for everyone. I mean, I would assume that one of the really significant parts of pediatric medicine is taking care of parents. <laughs> many times. Yeah. Many times. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, you're not just taking care of, I mean, taking care of adults. I mean, my, my assumption, even though I haven't, you know, when my mom has been sick is that the doctors will talk to her, but they will also talk to, to us as kids, you know, not, you know, I don't sort of put my hand up and say I'm a physician. I, you know, I just sort of listen and, you know, yeah. um, but it is a little different, you know, with, uh, you know, an adult physician or surgeon talking to, you know, a parent and their grown children. Um, than talking to a child and the child's parents. It sounds like a, a significant uh, part of the role is learning how to juggle really well. Yeah. This increase uh, in children coming in with dysregulated behavior, a lot of eating disorder stuff uh, that for you is deeply concerning and uh, unprecedented. Given all the factors of living in the time of COVID that you're seeing, um, as a pediatric doctor and also uh, as a parent, I'm wondering, as you're looking at this, looking at this uh, winter that we're entering into, what are the things that uh, what are the things that concern you moving forward? Well, there there are several things. One is I think we could be about to enter a very difficult period just related to just the total number of cases of coronavirus, um, which will span the age range, right? It's not just going to be one particular group. Although clearly, you know, communities of color have been more severely affected by this than, than others. And, you know, as it relates to, you know, my own family, I, you know, I, we, we tried to impress upon, you know, our kids and the, that, you know, wearing the mask and, you know, doing, trying to be, remain socially distant is, you know, incredibly important and that we're just going to do the best we can, you know, under the circumstances um, to try not to get coronavirus so that when the vaccine comes, we will all breathe a sigh of relief. And it is, it's actually here. Um, we can talk about that too. Um, yeah, it'd be nice to have something to breathe with relief over. Um, but I think, you know, I think the the real question is is um, what scars will be left after this is done on on this entire generation of of kids. And I I don't I don't know the answer to that. I think for every child is going to be different, right? I mean, as I said before. Most kids are in, just incredibly resilient. We don't give them enough credit for how resilient they they are. But there really are kids who went into this time with, you know, maybe being a little bit anxious or a little bit sad or, you know, just, you know, maybe not quite comfortable. And the pandemic just completely accelerated that. And it's an accelerator. And... You know, and and so kids who are having a little bit of difficulty and may have been completely fine, weren't. 
So let me uh, let me pop in on you there because people who are listening, I, I wonder, people particularly with kids or grandkids, and they see their child behaving with a certain set of concerns, and the question is, what are a few things you can think of that are the dividing line between this is normal to be expected as opposed to this is a concern worth following up? Like, what are the things that you see that are go from, you know, that's the way kids are, to we're in COVID, and as you suggested, there are kids who already had some issues with anxiety, who had some issues with school, issues with uh, boundaries uh, with their uh, parents, with their siblings. When does it move from sort of green towards yellow into red, do you think? So that's probably a great question for a psychologist or psychiatrist, Um, but I will give you my two cents. Please. To me, the one, if if the parents are if parents are thinking about or the child is thinking about that they might need to talk to someone, that they might need help, that they should just do it. Although I say that, and it's not that easy to find people to provide that assistance, you know, um, or and or it costs a lot of money to find someone to provide that assistance. So, you know, although I say that it, it, it can, you know, it's not as easy, easily done as it is just said. But I think it's important to, you know, mental health concerns are, are, are real. And if people are just thinking about it, it probably means there's something there that, you know, might benefit from just a little bit of, you know, exploration. When I think any of those, any of the, any issue begins to affect um, and encroach upon a child's life and how they want to live it or should be living it um, or on their functioning, then that's when they've crossed the line. It's like not getting out of bed, not getting on the computer when it's time for school, uh, not eating. uh, Yeah. They don't, you know, don't want to do this because I'm, you know, it's just, I'm too anxious. I can't eat that because I'm, you know, because of this reason, um, you know, that's, you know, the, the sort of the activities of daily living and of, of just living in general are being compromised because of whatever the issue is. Um, at that point, I think that, you know, there's a, a line that's probably been crossed. And one certainly can assume that in such an atmosphere, though not always concomitant, it's not it would not be unusual that there's not a parent uh, in that mix who is also feeling equally at wit's end, both about their child's behavior in their own life. I mean, it, it is such a uh, cluster of anxiety, and you know, adults who are used to at least ostensibly having a higher level of functioning and being able to determine what's up. You know, dealing with their their own anxiety, their own fears, and um, which makes them less accessible to children in those moments. And children who who I think generally are always looking on some unconscious level to protect their parents, that 
to want to add more on, uh, particularly when people, kids get older, they will withdraw rather mm-hmm. than come forward. So it's a such a, a complex uh, oh, it's situation. Super complicated, and you know, one of the things that people being all together all the time <laughs> does is, I think you know, I think kids and adults and everyone feels each other's stresses, right? And so, if there's a lot of stress, you know, in the house or whatever it is, then I think everyone's going to feel it more than they might have otherwise because mm-hmm. people would have been separate for a while and then coming back together. Yeah. So, yeah, it, 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 I think that's one of the factors that has just made this a lot worse. How does one propagate a sense of hope during uh, this period, particularly moving into this uh, period where, listen, when, when Dr. Fauci says something we all, it's like, I forget the name of the, uh, the company, the investment company where when someone talks, you listen. I mean, when Fauci talks, everybody uh, leans in, you know, and when he talks about we're going into a really dark, terrible place, I'm like, oh, no, not you, Tony. No, don't tell me, you know. So, <laughs> all right, so got that and duly noted, you know, multiple masks in every conceivable pocket thrown everywhere on the counter in the bedroom, everywhere. So got that. Given all of that and all of the um, the, the heaping platters of anxiety that are being played out and, and distributed to us, give us a sense, Jonathan, again, for you professionally and for you personally, what are you hoping for moving forward through this dark time? That locally, regionally, um, that people wear their masks, they keep their hands clean as much as possible, and they socially distance effectively uh, so that, and just follow the rules so that the incredible number of cases we had yesterday, which was more than we've ever had before, so I think it was close to 6,500, is worrisome. (laughs) <laughs> that's worrisome um so it may come back down to today I, you know who knows i don't always think it's a a done deal um that we have to end up in a deep dark place this winter um as people talk about i think if if everybody does really what they're supposed to do i think just like we did in march and april you know we can sort of get it a little bit more under control um, and it doesn't have to be so overwhelming because, you know, when if we don't, the ICUs will fill, um, the field hospital will open, that will fill, and then people will suddenly go, oh, I guess this was not really good. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and then it's just too late, you know. So having some forethought would really be nice. And I think for the most part, most people do really follow the, the rules. And it's incredibly difficult, right? People yes. want to see their family. It's not the same when you have a mask on. It's, it's, it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard. What I am sort of trying to push <laughs> with my own family is if we can just get through this next hump, I think we're going to be okay. Just to, that there's a little bit of light there at the end of the tunnel, which there I don't think there has been. So the FDA is meeting on December 10th about the Pfizer vaccine and then December 17th about the Moderna vaccine. 
at our hospital yesterday. There was an hour-long presentation about the vaccine and who will be mm. getting it potentially within two weeks. And that's really the 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 saving grace. I mean, we vaccines are are the you know, one of the single greatest accomplishments for public health ever. Uh, I mean, we eradicated smallpox completely. And so I think the hope and the light is is really related to the to the vaccines. If we don't have the vaccines, we're we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're just gonna keep bumping along. I mean, you know, we'll have a spike, we'll get it under control because people will start, you know, they'll have to shut everything down because there's no other thing that, that nothing else they can do. Things will get under control. People will get comfortable again and then we'll just go back up and we'll just kind of bump along until we have you know, the quote herd immunity that, you know, people have talked about. I do think there is some hope now um, that was not present, you know, back in March and April when really it was, no one had any idea what was going on and just were, you know, really scared. I mean, it was, it was really a different time. Rachel reminded me uh, that I remember I went into uh, the grocery store with a mask on because those were the rules at the hospital at the I don't know if it was March or April, I don't remember, but it was early. You had to wear a mask. Um, and so I was like, well, why am I wearing a mask in the hospital, but not, you know, in the community? And right. so I wore one to go grocery shopping, but I felt very self-conscious. In fact, I ran into someone who I knew and I felt like I had to explain the fact that I had a mask on. <laughs> and now, you know, if you see someone without a mask, it's, you know, you're not even allowed, well, you're not even allowed in the store without a mask. So it doesn't right. make any, you know, but if you see people walking around without a mask, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's the complete opposite now. So I think we've come a long way, but the, the 6,400 cases yesterday was just a, uh, was a little depressing. Yeah, it, it is depressing. And I, I, I do think that to be able to hold on to the possibility of the vaccine is something that will be the game changer that we're looking for is something uh, to hold on to with hope. And I just want to thank you so much for coming in today and talking with us, Jonathan. And really, on behalf of all of us uh, in the community, thank you for your work and for your determination to uh, take care of children who are in such pain and the kind of uh, nurturance your work gives to parents just so they can see that they can take a breath and say, will you help me? And you do. And you and your colleagues are essential to us. And we'll keep on sending you meals and anything else you need to keep going because you mean that much to us. So thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for coming in today. And thanks for being a member of the temple. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodad.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.